As I was considering a message for tonight, one of the things that crossed my mind uh, is a message that some might consider seasonal. In fact, if you go on the internet and you look for a message on the subject, you find that it's often preached on a certain day. And yet, I wonder why. This past week we had Ash Wednesday, as it's celebrated by some of one particular religious nature. And in that, some then go for 40 days of what they call Lent, and they purposely keep themselves from certain foods and certain things. And it's all looking forward to a day that we call Easter. And yet, that Easter that we celebrate is really we're celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and yet it's a message that you rarely hear preached about, the resurrection. And so today I want to look at the resurrection. It's probably a topic we should look at more often. As I searched the internet for other messages on it, it was often an Easter message that I found that someone had preached. And so I wonder why we limit this message to a seasonal message. We're going to look at a number of verses. I'm not going to go with one passage tonight. I'm going to go out of my comfort zone in a number of different areas. I like to usually go through one passage and explain it. I'm much more comfortable doing that. And then using other passages to highlight that passage. I usually don't speak on subjects. And then the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to use an outline that all starts with the single letter. And I'll tell you, I've never done that before. So um, hopefully it's not forced. I didn't particularly have to pull out my thesaurus to get this. Most of these came naturally, and that's one of the reasons I did. So Philippians 3 and 10 is where we're going to start. It's a very familiar verse, I think, to most of us. And yet, in its familiarity, we tend to overlook it. Or I think we don't really grasp it. At least I don't. I can't speak for you. I usually don't like speakers to speak for me, but I find myself guilty of that way too often. Philippians 3 and verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of the resurrection. What does that mean? It would seem to me that if anyone knew the power of the resurrection, that it would be Paul. And as you read his writings, he brings the power of the resurrection or he brings out the resurrection time and time and time again. And so why is it that that's still Paul's desire? And I don't live my life like Paul lived his life in the light of the power of resurrection. If he wanted to know it more, then it makes sense to me that I probably don't know it very well. And yet it wasn't just Paul's personal desire to know the power of the resurrection. It was what he prayed for. For others, turn over to Philippians 1, 
if you would. And as you're turning to there, and that's a par- Paul's first prayer in Philippians, or Ephesians 1, sorry. As in Ephesians 1, there's two prayers. This is the first one. And he prays, he's very specific what he prays for them. And he's going to ask God to bestow upon them a deeper knowledge and understanding of Christ that we do well to seek for ourselves. If that was his prayer for the Ephesians, should that not be the prayer that we pray for ourselves? And it's not something that you can learn in a seminary, and it's not something that you can read just through Bible study or devotional books. What Paul's praying is that they will receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ. Ephesians 1 and 19. Says this, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places? Now, if we were doing a word study, we might want to go in here and see that there's four different words in the Greek that he uses to describe the power. One of them's a word we get dynamite from, and that's really not my purpose, but I would suggest that if you've never done that, that you go in and look at the way it describes this power. But Paul's not talking about head knowledge here. Paul's not talking about head knowledge. And to illustrate this, I could have brought this, but imagine if you would, I'm holding in my hand a jar of honey and you look at the honey, and you can see that it's honey because it has a label that it's honey. You can see that it's a brown color. You can see even the thickness that it moves like honey. It has the consistency of honey. And so you can have knowledge about that honey. But the knowledge he's talking here is about experiential knowledge. It's when you open the jar and you taste the honey that you know what it is, and you know really what honey is. You can have a lot of knowledge about something, but you might not have any experience with it. And the knowledge, and in the Greek, there's two different words for that type of knowledge, and this is experiential knowledge. It only comes when you taste it. It only comes when you experience it. And what Paul's praying is that we'll have a conscious experience of the power of God as demonstrated in the resurrection. So there's six things I'd like to look at about the resurrection. And I warned you, they all start with the same letter. The resurrection was predicted by the Lord himself. The resurrection is proof of his deity. The resurrection is a pillar of the gospel. The resurrection is a pledge of our own resurrection. The resurrection is a promise of new life with a heavenly inheritance, and the resurrection is a pattern for us as believers. The first one, predicted by the Lord himself. Turn over to John 16, if you would. We're going to look at verse 19, or start at verse 19 and read 20 also.
Starting with verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted him to ask, they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? He had stated that earlier, and they were full of questions that had that look on their face. Sort of like when I preach and everybody's going, What? It's the same idea. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What was it that turned the disciples' sorrow into joy? What was it that the world rejoiced over while they were sorrowful? What changed the disciples from cowering men into bold, fearless men? Turn over a couple pages to John 20. We're going to look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They were sorrowful. They were fearful. They were in hiding. The doors were bolted out of fear. And it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father had sent me, even so I am sending you. What turned their sorrow into joy was in seeing this one that they had seen die. The one who all their hopes of were in, the one who they thought was a Messiah, and they saw him die, and they thought their hopes were dashed, he was alive. He was alive. And they were glad. Their sorrow turned to joy, just like he had told them they were. He'd gone away, but he'd returned. He was gone away just for a little while. He had told them. They didn't quite get it. But when they returned, they were glad. They were able then to preach Jesus Christ that was crucified has been raised by the power of God Jesus Christ was alive, and they did so without fear. Think about that for a moment. These same men who were cowering for fear of the Jews, days later, were bold in the preaching of the gospel. They had lost their fear. What was it that caused them to lose their fear? Point number two, I didn't number them, but I think it's two. Turn over to Romans 1 and 4, if you would. Romans 1 and 4 says this. 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ is the most conclusive, irrefutable evidence of his being the Son of God. It's a supreme demonstration of his ability to conquer death, a power belonging to only God himself. He establishes through that act beyond all doubt that he's the son of God. And that's what Paul's telling us this. He proved that what he said was true. He proved that he came from God and that he was going to return to God. John 8, 10 and 18. You don't have to turn to it. It's a fairly familiar verse to us. It says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Man found Jesus Christ worthy of death and passed that sentence on him. But he was without sin. He was absolutely sinless. He was innocent. He was holy. And God showed his judgment of his holiness by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we see that that verse says, in the spirit of holiness. God says, no, no. He's innocent. He reverses the sentence and he's raised from again. The resurrection of God is a powerful thing because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a powerful thing because it defeated Satan. When Satan thought he had won the biggest battle of all, when Jesus Christ comes back from the dead, it's its absolute defeat. And that's why we say he defeated death and sin. And he defeated Satan. Satan's lie is this, that this life is all there is. And you can see a number of philosophies, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Do good to your fellow man because all you're going to leave behind is a legacy. And we live in a day and age where most of your atheists and your agnostics have bought into that lie. There is no God. This life is all there is. There's nothing after. And the resurrection of Jesus puts a lie, puts that lie to shame. Because there is life after death. He has said there is. He has testified that there was. And he had testified that he would prove it. And he absolutely did. And he shows that there is something after death. We sometimes sing in our black hymn books, we sing the song, When sin or all seem to prevail, redemption glory shed. Satan th thought he had won the battle. It looked like it was the end. And even the disciples, unfortunately, thought it was the end. And thought all was lost. And once again, what turned victory into joy? What proved that he was right? What proved that he was very God was his resurrection. It's a pillar of the gospel. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, if you have not studied it, is a great 
text on the resurrection. We're going to look at a couple. It would be almost impossible to discuss the resurrection without looking at this passage. First Corinthians 15 verse 1 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You know, I have to be honest with you that I've preached the gospel a number of times, and there's often preached the gospel without mentioning the resurrection. But Paul tells us here that the very gospel is just not that Jesus Christ died for our sins. As important as that is, and it's extremely important, but he tells us that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. And when we get to Romans, Paul will even tell us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was for our justification. But it's a pillar of the gospel, and it puts, a, it puts Satan's lie to the test. And so when we preach the gospel, there is more to life than what is here and now. There is a God who brings back to life. And there's a God who will judge after this life. Preaching through Revelation, I think I mentioned that last time I was here, is one of the things that talks about everlasting life, everlasting life, everlasting life, and then it says a second death. Well, you know, as I thought about it, you know, that second death is eternal death. There's no reprieve. There's no reprieve. This life is not all that there is. What did the disciples have to preach after Jesus' death? He was a martyr. He was a good teacher. He said good things. He had good things to say. He was a good example to follow. No. The message that the Holy Spirit used on Pentecost is that the very Jesus they had crucified, God raised him from the dead and had placed him on the right hand of, of God on high. If you remember the conversations he's, he had during his trial, he told the Pharisees, you will see the Son of Man descending because there's more to this life. There's judgment coming after this life. Over to Acts if you read, if you would. Thinking about this being the pillar of the gospel, the pillar of the gospel. Notice the gospel message that was preached. If you remember when they chose Matthias, that one of the things that had to be true is that they had been there from the beginning, but they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Acts 1. They had to be an eyewitness. So notice in Acts 4... Did I tell you that? Sometimes I forget to tell you the passage. And there is a reason I do that, at least, because I hear people speak and they go, turn to Acts 4.33. 
by the time I find Acts, I forgot what the chapter was. So I try to give it in two segments. You can find the book of Acts, and then I'll give you the passage so that if your memory's short like mine, you can remember it. And so Acts 4 and, thir- 4 and verse 33 says this, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what they preached. Most of the people in, in Jerusalem after Pente- at the time of Pentecost had seen the crucifixion. They were eyewitnesses to the fact he was dead. And yet all these men boldly preached that he was alive. That he was alive. Notice the results. Acts 2 and, and 41. You want to talk about the power of the resurrection. Acts 2 and 41 says this, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added to the, that day about 3,000 souls. Now that's pretty amazing. 3,000 is a pretty big number. They preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to read it again, the result of this message was Peter's earlier message in, a, in, the, in the verses before in Acts 2. A great message by Peter. Now turn over to Acts 4. Acts 4 and verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. They weren't done with 3,000. They weren't done with 5,000. Now turn over to Acts 5 and 14. And 5 and 14 says this, and more than ever, Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. In other words, it became to a problem they couldn't count them any longer. And what was the message preached? Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. Much to my shame, I don't think I preach about the resurrection nearly enough. And as you go through the books, that's, a book, that's what's preached throughout the book of Acts. That very message. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians 15, if you would. My wife sometimes tells me you need to mark the spot. Well, we will be in this chapter a few times, so if you want to put a bookmark there, help you find it the next time, it might be helpful. It's a message that Paul preached everywhere he went. 1 Corinthians 15 and 14. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. If Christ didn't raise from the dead and the dead don't rise from the dead... And God doesn't, and there isn't more to life after this than all this life is, then I've been lying to you the whole time. But that's not true. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your, vein, in your sins. The resurrection is a pillar of the gospel because if it never happened, there is no gospel. Think about that. 
the resurrection didn't happen, there is no gospel. But in fact, the resurrection did happen, and it absolutely validates, validates the fact that Jesus Christ was God, and that when he died, he died for us. And when he was raised, he raised again for our justification. Turn over to Romans 10 and 9, if you would. And what Paul's going to write is actually very important that faith in the resurrection is foundational to one being saved. Sometimes people say, well, what's the foundational gospels? Well, I want to tell you, the virgin birth and the resurrection, Jesus Christ was born as man and was God at the same time, are foundational gospels. Notice what Paul says here. Now thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, if I was writing this from, theolo from a theological point of view, and I was writing about knowledge, and someone says, how does one get saved? I probably would say, believe that Jesus Christ died in your place at Calvary, and that when he died, he took his sins upon you. And you're forgiven based upon his pain, the, your debt that you owed. And notice what Paul says. It's to believe, to believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead. To be honest, I don't know that I preach that gospel very often. That part of the gospel and an important part of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On to the next one. The, the pledge of our own resurrection. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, if you would. In 1 in Corinthians 15 and verse 20, Paul says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is following up on the previous argument that he made, that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then Paul was a liar. But the fact is that he was raised from the dead, and the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he's the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I'm not a farmer. Been on a farm. Picked a thing or two in my time. Maybe could count on one hand the number of things I've picked. So I'm not a farmer, but I understand first fruits. When I was about 12, we visited a relative's farm in Canada, and it was a 10,000-acre wheat farm. And when I was 12, they just signed the big wheat deal with, with Russia, and they were busy harvesting and counting their money because they were going to get a lot. And so this idea of first fruits was that... You plant the first crops, and when they come in healthy, and when they come in in full bloom, that's the first fruits. That's the guarantee that the rest of the crop's going to come in, in in its season on time. 
Now, what the Lord did in the Old Testament is he told them that the first fruits of the crops belong to him. And they need to bring it to him and give that first fruits to him. So when Paul's writing about the resurrection, he comes up and he says the fact that Christ was raised from the dead has that same idea. That's a guarantee that the rest will come in. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. His resurrection guarantees us life after death. As surely as he rose and remains alive, shows that we will rise again and remain alive. Turn over to, to go down to verse 30. Paul was so convinced that this was true that he lived his life in the knowledge of this. And he risked his own life to preach that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He risked his own life because he knew the power of the resurrection. I can't tell you I've ever risked my life because I knew the power of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.30. Some people take this out of context. I'm not taking this out of context. Paul has put this in the chapter concerning the resurrection and concerning due to the resurrection, this is what he does. This is what motivates him is because of the truth of the resurrection. Someone was trying to explain to me the other day that this means that you die daily to self. It, 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 he's not talking about dying, dying daily to self. What he's saying is he risked his life on a daily basis. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. Was he physically dying every day? No, but he was risking his life every day. And if you read, especially 2 Corinthians, and you read his accounts of how many times he almost died, here was a man, because of the power of the resurrection, risked his life on a daily basis. 1 Corinthians 6.14, you don't have to turn to it, but it says this, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul lived a life that was so acquainted with the resurrection and the power of the resurrection that he was willing to die in order to serve the Lord Jesus. I know nothing about that type of power. And yet Paul, who knew that type of power, would later write, because Philippians was a much later book, would write, I want to know more about that power. I want to know more about that power. And then later he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Whether he lived or he died, his desire was to serve the Lord because he knew of the guarantee of the resurrection. He knew that he would be raised from the dead because the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. The, the next one, promise of new life with heavenly inheritance reserved for us and our being reserved for it. And if you'll turn over to 1 Peter, we'll see Peter's take on some of this. We'll see Peter's take on some of this. First Peter 1 and verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, un and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter went from hopelessness to having a living hope. He knew and witnessed the death of Jesus Christ. He was fearful. He was sorrowful. He was without hope. And when he saw the resurrection that Jesus Christ had raised from the dead, he was energized by this living hope. He was energized by this living hope. And it changed him completely. It changed him from being hiding and fearful to being willing to stand up and point at the crowd and say, you, with your own wicked hands, you've crucified him. That took courage. That took boldness. And so here this man, days earlier, was hiding. Now is out of hiding. It's extremely bold. But it's just not that. He says, we also have new life due to the resurrection. We have been tr transformed into newness of life by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second. It's due to the resurrection that we have newness of life. God, God's way of salvation is pretty marvelous. God could have saved us, justify us, and left us sort of powerless and hopeless. But he didn't. He saved us, justified us, cleansed us, gave us new life. Turn over to Second Peter then, if you would, as he's, as he's going to talk a little bit more about this in Second Peter. About, about this new life. And Peter says the reason we have new life is because of the resurrection. That the new life Christ has is a new life we have. Now look at this. He says in 2 Peter 1, in verse 3, According as his divine power has given us unto all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you may by partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have a new life that's born, that we've been born again. We've been made a partaker of the very nature of God. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. He didn't justify us and leave us. He made us a new creation. He put a new heart in us. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He made a partaker of the divine nature. Turn over to Ephesians 1, if you would. We looked at this earlier. Now let's look at it in the context of which it is. We're going to start reading at verse 17 again. It says this, Ephesians 1 and verse 17, that, God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom, the revelation knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Does that sound pretty much what Peter wrote 
about the hope and the inheritance and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of the great might that he worked in Christ, that he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to describe just how high Christ is raised in that power. Now turn over to the second chapter and the first verse. Because then he's going to tell us this. And, and unfortunately, chapter headings come at the wrong place and the wrong time at times. But he's continuing this same thought about the resurrection. And what he says is, and you he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. That same power of the resurrection is what has given you new life and made you who were dead in your sins now alive. That you have experienced the power of God in your life if you're a believer. Because it's that very power that raised Christ from the dead that has given you new life. Has given you new life. And so we've been transformed in the newness of life. And that life comes with a great inheritance that is incorruptible. It's impervious to death. And Paul would tell us that we've conquered death due to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is life after death to all those who know the Lord Jesus. Pattern for the believers. I should get the first page out and see where we're at on this. Um, the last one, thank you. Good timing. Didn't count them, so the pattern for the believers. Turn over Romans 6, if you would. Romans 6. Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Or would he continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that those of us who, were bapti who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I was at a Bible conference yesterday. And the preacher took up Romans 6.1 and said that it was about water baptism. And the farther he went, the more he had to struggle because it's simply not about water baptism. Water baptism is a symbol or a picture of what takes place spiritually. If you turn to Colossians 2, Colossians 2 tells us that we have a circumcision that is made without hands. Well, let me tell you, a circumcision made without hands can only be one thing, and that's a spiritual circumcision. The very next verse, the very next phrase is, and we've been baptized. And that baptism in that verse is just as spiritual as the circumcision is. The water is a wonderful picture of the identity we have with Christ, that God sees us when Christ died on the cross, God sees us as dying with Christ. 
And then he sees us having been buried with him. And then Paul wants you to know that he sees us having been raised again to newness of life. That the resurrection is a picture and a pattern for us to be raised to a new life. A new life in Christ. Now the water is a wonderful picture of that. When we go down into the water, it's a signification of being buried. And when we come up out of the water, it's a signification of rising again to newness of life. But that's a symbol. That's not the reality that he's talking about here in Romans 6. As you study scriptures, always look for identity as being identified with. And if you know, God is very big on being identified with. And if you study, especially Leviticus, study the offerings. And each of the offerings, the person who brought the offering had to lay his hand on the offering and identify that offering with himself and, and understand that that animal was dying in their place. Did they die? No. The animal who they had identified with died. And so Paul would tell us here that we've been identified by God with Christ. And by faith, we say, Christ died for me. And so that's what he sees here in this passage for us. And he says, we're dead to sin because just as Christ died, we died. And we're alive to God. And just as Christ has died and been raised again, we've been raised again. Just like that. Turn over to Colossians 3. And we'll look at, we'll look at that. And, and Paul will bring out that point again. And we're thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a pattern for believers. Colossians 3 and verse 1. And he says this. Since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And Paul says, your new life should be lived differently because you died and you were raised again, and now you're seated where Christ is seated. And your mind should be on heavenly things. The resurrection is a pattern for us as it is a believer. It is because of the resurrection that we have ultimate victory over sin. I mentioned that earlier. Probably never mentioned this enough in my opinion. But there's three, three things that we need to remember. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're going to be saved. We're saved from the power of sin. And Romans 6 is a great chapter on being saved from the power of sin. Colossians 3 is a great chapter from being saved from the power of sin. We do no longer have to yield our bodies to sin. We don't have to yield our members to sin. We no longer have to continue to sin. We can say no. Unfortunately, we don't say no quite often enough. And I'm not pe preaching sinless perfection. But hopefully, sanctification, practical sanctification is that we sin less every day and we become more like Christ every day. But the great news is that there's coming a day 
when we'll be saved from the presence of sin. Because we'll ever be where he is, we will be like him, and we will see him as he is. He's absolutely holy. There's coming a day when we will be holy. That's because of who he is. There's coming a day where we will no longer have to battle temptation. We will no longer have to repent. We'll no longer have to go to those we've hurt and sinned against and apologize because we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. We're looking forward to that day. We're looking forward to that day. But we have that ability because he was raised and we have newness of life. The last thing we want to look at is 1 Corinthians 15. Wow. I got gas at Costco on my way over here, and I, was, I, I think it was the slowest pump I've ever had at Costco. And then I come here, and you have the fastest clock in the whole world. So, you know, I can't win. Slow pumps at Costco and fast clocks at Claremont. 1 Corinthians 15 and 53. I'm used to Ricky sitting in the front seat paying attention, and then I can look at him to see if I'm getting through, but he had, he had senior camp this week, right? So, weekend, last weekend? And he's still not recovering. No, just kidding. 1 Corinthians 15, 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, so where, so when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall we be brought to pass, a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is a law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's due to his resurrection. Now, Paul, I think, had personal experiential knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My personal feelings are, and, and this is speculation, I always want to label it as speculation, but I think Paul was a witness to the death of Jesus Christ. And when he was on that Damascus road and that bright light shined and he said, who is it, Lord? And he said, it, it is Jesus. I think Paul fully knew that he was alive and that he had been raised from the dead. I think he'd heard that message. And I'm sure if he was attending Stephen when he was stoned, he'd heard that message. But I don't think he believed it. But there on that Damascus road, he had a spiritual experience where he knew the power of the resurrection. So I believe Paul knew the power of the resurrection, yet he wanted to know more about the power of the resurrection. And my question to myself, at least, is this, do I know about the power of the resurrection? Do I live a life that's energized by the power of the resurrection? The apostles were energized by the power of the resurrection. Am I energized by the power of the resurrection? Is it something I know up here? But I really don't know here because that's not how I live my life. So the challenge to myself is, am I living in the knowledge of the power of the resurrection so that I might be energized by it and that I might bring glory 
to God in the life that I live. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you. We thank you that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We thank you that it proves that he was very God. We thank you that it proves that there's life after death. We thank you that it proves that our message, Father, of salvation is free and available and that there's judgment for those who reject it. That this is not all there is, Father, that that lie that Satan has told and convinced so many people of will lead many people to eternal death. And so, Father, we would be like Paul. We would, knowing the terrors of the Lord, we, should, we persuade men that we have a real thirst for souls, that we have an understanding of the power of the resurrection and the might that it comes with it, that we might preach Jesus Christ died, buried, and rose again. So, Father, we might be energized by it so that we might bring glory to the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.